Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by me, Alex Thompson, and I'm joined, as ever for this series, by Gevorg Virats, who, at the time of recording, has just made his first guest appearance on UK Colin News, as the two of us have been here in Odessa together on other business. Gevorg, this series, Eastern Approaches podcast, is largely about various countries in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. But you actually started off, although being from this part of the world, with an interest in our part of the world. Tell us something about the time of life and the the circumstances you were in as well when you started getting interested in the theme of our podcast today, which is the Celtic nations. Well, greetings to all of our listeners. And this is a very interesting question indeed you started this off with, Alex, because in the Caucasus, where I grew up... For those who don't know, where's that? Well, I don't imagine that any of the Eastern Approaches podcast listeners wouldn't know where where, where the Caucasus is, but that's uh, the southeastern fringe of of Europe, largely. So if you like, imagine Europe, go southeast, and then go further east again, there you might find this semi-peninsular that is that is the Caucasus between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. That's that's pretty much it. So there, people have no idea about the Celts. They don't know who the Celts are. Even though uh, the Celts used to live in that area, uh, well, even 2,000 years ago, there was, there, there was a Celtic presence in what's, what's today part of uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan. But, but not, not today. Today, uh, the people... Uh, would not even be familiar with with the word Celt or Celtic, which I, as a child, found very strange because I read the encyclopedia, you see. The great Soviet encyclopedia. Precisely. The great Soviet encyclopedia. And there you had all these mentions of the Celts and the Irish and the Scottish and some of the other peoples, like the Manx. And I would... I knew who the Germans were, and I also knew knew the English. I, uh, I had heard about the French, but I I was always puzzled with this. Now, how, how can you how can you potentially not know about this great heritage that is presented here? If if you want to be familiar with Europe, if you want to be familiar with with with, with what's what's in, in Europe. Later in life, much later in life, I found out that actually many Europeans have no idea about who the Celts are. The Brits' nearest neighbours in many ways are the Dutch, and they regard the Welsh, Irish and Scots as appendages of England. Well, uh, Britain is often called England in Russian. When when the Russians speak about Britain, they would often say England, and uh, they would assume that it's just the English that live there, uh, not the Russians that go to England nowadays, I don't imagine, because when I first went to Britain, on my first ever visit abroad, uh, I, I got my passport stamped by a sick officer. And, and that kind of put my perception about uh, what England was uh, to question. 
because I imagine it was a land of Shakespeare and Byron, uh, that that kind of thing. But uh, it turned out that uh, I had a very hard time uh, trying to understand the person who was questioning me for for entry, well, because his accent wasn't English at all. I, I was used to learning English uh, the way the BBC spoke in the 70s. That was what they taught us at our schools in, in, in the Soviet Union. And there I arrive and, and this person speaks differently and I need to make an effort to try to understand him. But anyway, anyway, England is England and it's not solely English uh, in its population, but Britain is even even more interesting in terms of being uh, comprised of different nations. It's pretty unique in the world, actually, to have a united kingdom of nations. And this is what the Brits are unaware of for their part, is that other countries, even the nearest neighbours and the most similar economies, and even the Americans and our cousins in the Commonwealth, can't always get their heads around the idea of a multi-jurisdictional, multinational heritage state that isn't a composite like the Soviet Union was. It's nations choosing to weld themselves together, so a nation of nations. Uh, the only other example was a very brief one I'm aware of, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, 1815 to 1830. Uh, and other than that, it doesn't really happen in the world. Now, uh, to say that it is the nations choosing to weld themselves together, I would uh, go back to people like Owen Glendur, who could potentially have objections to that particular phrasing, because uh, I do recall that he did not quite welcome the English on the Welsh soil with, 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 with open arms. Did you get to Machenslech on your travels, where he held uh, his parliament? Uh, not quite Machenslech, but I uh, did go uh, to Aberystwyth, and, and I saw the surroundings, and uh, there is an Owen Glendur street, in Aberystwyth, which uh, which was, was beautiful, and I, I really like the fact that the Welsh remember their heritage. I think it's amazing, but no. But just going back a bit, you were a boy in the last decade, as it turned out, of the Soviet Union. That's right. You were the son of an approved military officer. The KGB had vetted your family. <laughs> you had a flair for languages and ethnology. So if Gorbachev had held things together a bit longer you would have been off to elite diplomatic academy in Moscow, Ngimo. That could be possible, uh, though it never happened because Soviet Union collapsed very uh, shortly after I entered into my formal education at school. But uh, nevertheless, I was always interested in the, in the Celtic world and particularly in, in, in the Gaelic Celtic word, the world, or namely the Scottish heritage and the Irish heritage. Why? Was it, uh, we were talking about this just before we started recording, Russia and the Russosphere got a very pronounced interest in Celtic music, especially Irish and Scottish music, around 1990. Was it the music, as so many other people around the world say, that grabbed you towards the Gaelic heritage? Uh, it wasn't initially the music. It was initially the fact that I didn't know anything about that part of the world and I didn't know anything about the heritage that they had, so I had to discover that for myself. 
but the more I learned, the more fascinated I got by what the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh actually have as part of their culture and part of their heritage. And of course, this was enhanced by the fact that there are tight connections between uh, Scotland and uh, Russia, the Imperial uh, Russia because some of the Russian military officers and one of the most prominent poets uh, in Russia, Mikhail Lermontov, uh, they, are of, uh, they are of Scottish stock. His was it great-grandfather was named Learmonth. That's, uh, I, I'm not sure whether it was his great-grandfather or just simply grandfather, but uh, that, that could be checked on Wikipedia or something. But but he was he, he was of Scottish extraction, and and we we heard that you know these people like Barclay de Tolly, for instance, or or Lermontov, they they've had they've had Scottish ancestry. But, but the Russian Navy has a saltire, but it's blue on white rather than white on blue because Peter colors. the Great uh, wanted to copy uh, Scotland in many ways, didn't he? Oh, I don't know that it was the desire to copy Scotland. I think the, uh, the copying part was more to do with, with the Netherlands. But I think he was genuinely inspired by Scotland in many ways. And because, because the Scots uh, did help him set up his navy, uh, I think it was, it was a sign of some, some continuity that the Russians have tried to show through that St. Andrew's Salta. On, on their flag. But uh, on another note, interestingly, in, in the Soviet Union, uh, during Stalin's era, there was a, there was a translator who, who translated Robert Burns into Russian uh, very, very beautifully, retaining all the rhyme and the melody of the literature. And that I got to read at a very early age as well. And, and, and there, were, there, there were mentions of Pitts, in, in those, in those uh, poems, and that posed another question: uh, Who were the Picts? Why, why don't we uh, see well, a Pict land on the map? Well, I went to Cambridge allegedly to study this Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic. One of the very few courses that offers this, and the answer is we don't know. <laughs> but of course, dressed up academically. Of course, when you and I first met in uh, 1999 or it 2000, was, yes. we were teenagers. Uh, the first phrase, uh, uh, the first phrase I've ever uttered in your direction was "Dierut." absolutely, because I was told that here is this man uh, who who studied studied Celtic uh, cultures, and so oh, Celtic cultures, wonderful. Let, let us let, let us see if we're able to converse in, in in Gaelic a little bit. Before we, of course, I nearly jumped out of my seat then, but uh, you had managed to obtain books at a time when it was extremely difficult to do so in your collapsed post-Soviet uh, economy. So you had the right skills and interest to do so, and you went to the Central Library and wherever else to get you to teach yourself Irish and Arnold Toynbee's study of history in 12 volumes and rare books like that, didn't you? So that was your head start. Uh, you mentioned there the Scots uh, in the Tsarist Empire. I have been shocked on my travels through Eastern Europe to see how much this happened, actually. Uh, even in places that people don't remember were Tsarist in the 19th century, like Finland and most of Poland, you will find um, mills and factories were set up by Scots entrepreneurs, and a good deal of Irish went out as well, turning virgin land into lumber factories, for example. 
or ironworks. Even in the Caucasus, Alex, there was uh, there was a significant Irish presence during the Russian Empire. The Irish were uh, manufacturers, and uh, some of them owned uh, larger factories and produced various things for for the Russian economy. It was and linen working, especially that they excelled in. I think, wasn't it? Well, that was the, their entry into other. And and well, they integrated into the society. It's uh, the interesting part of it is that the Irish, they were seen as um, well almost like the refugees in Russia because. Back in those days, the Irish weren't weren't very comfortable in in in, in the British framework. Uh, that's uh, going back to your well, uh, you know, deliberate choosing of welding the nations together. They weren't that very comfortable back then, so they came to Russia, settled there, and, and established their manufactures. And uh, they integrated. They learned the Russian language, but they also retained their tradition of drinking on the uh, March seventeenth, and and that goes on to this day. Seventeenth uh, of March is the day when the Irish drink, and even Georgians know it nowadays. So, yes, it was very very interesting ever since the beginning. Well, now you got to Britain. Sadly, you never managed to make it to Ireland, north or south, with, well, basically being short of funds and visa problems later when you tried to come back. But you have seen England, Scotland and Wales thoroughly, and you studied in Wales as well. Um, Where shall we go from here? Uh, What about the Welsh and the Scots, and indeed the English if you like, lived up to your expectations from your... Uh, elite Soviet education of learn Robert Burns by heart and uh, picture Foggy Albion in your mind. What lived up to those expectations and what didn't? Well, it's a good question. What I'd like to say towards this is that uh, other than other than learning uh, about the Celtic nations in my childhood, I also got a pretty sound theological training afterwards and then when I came to Britain to formalize this education I was able to study in Wales and I got exposed to the Welsh culture and the Welsh uh, religious tradition but also to the Scottish tradition and, and, and Scots and I must say that I was surprised by how much of the history and the culture of Britain is still available for anyone to see, even though almost no one notices it. When you uh, cruise down uh, the Welsh valleys, you see these independent churches, for instance. The chapels. The chapels, the independent Baptist churches or independent evangelical churches, and of course they would have their history. In fact, they were Methodist and Presbyterian before that. Baptists came later, but the the history was absolutely, if you weren't English-speaking middle-class ascendancy, certainly in mid-Wales and South Wales, you were non-conformist chapel. So that was the place where the Welsh language was maintained. Well, the interesting part of it is that these people did not embrace Anglicanism as their, even though it was a state religion, they they still wanted to be something different, something Notable, other than it? that. They, they had, had been incorporated in the 13th century and then formalised under Henry VIII by statute that the Wales and uh, in England, England were a single jurisdiction, English laws applied. And yet, 
there was a recognition de facto that they would never become English in religion. And of course, with the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707, uh, religion together with uh, law and education was acknowledged as something that could not be merged. And in 1800, you've got the Act of Union with Ireland, and of course, Anglicanism insisted on becoming the official religion, owning the parish churches. But again, the breaking point was Catholicism. So religion is something in which you cannot weld countries together, is what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying is that this independent form of religiosity in Wales was a way to uh, manifest their Welsh national identity through the times when that was uh, forbidden. And uh, if the independent churches or the non-conformist churches in England, and there are many in England, were born out of intellectual dissent. Oh, they very much were. Uh, people became middle class and had a Bible to read and thought, oh, we don't like the C of E anymore. Uh, in Wales, it was more uh, more of uh, this approach. We are we're Welsh, we're not English, so yes. we've got to be separate. We've got to be something different. There was no animosity towards Anglicanism in Wales that I could see, but when Welsh was the first and only language of most communities, until the mid-19th century, in fact, in many parts of Wales, um, and it only changed because of obligatory schooling in English, the attitude was, these churches are for the size, for the English, they're not ours. Well, um, animosity you mentioned, and it's another very interesting trait of the Welsh. The Welsh, they have concentrated their political and their uh, geopolitical powers, as it were, in realms where that cannot be taken away from them by force, namely in their musical culture and singing. Uh, they uh, will not uh, show any animosity towards the English because they know that if something happens, subconsciously of course, if something happens between the English and the Welsh, they're going to go extinct. That's what's going to happen. This was the conscious thinking that got them to found a colony in Patagonia. Uh, they they did found a colony in Patagonia as as the Scots went went to Panama and tried to uh, tried to establish their colony there, but uh, apart from this thinking of escapism and trying to preserve themselves elsewhere, uh, there were always people who maintained their identity and refused to le leave the land and wanted to dwell in it. But how do you dwell in the land when when you are encroached upon by, by another power, another force that is very, very strong. And you Armenians have had this uh, how many times over the last 2,000 years? Uh, 2,000 times, I guess, but that's not, uh, that's, that, that's not the same thing, because what happened in Wales, it, it wasn't outright genocide in Wales. It was, it was more of a cultural expansion, and then it was, uh, then it was assimilation, of the Welsh into the English culture and people changing their surnames from Welsh sounding to English sounding and so forth. But interestingly, the Welsh have managed to find this dimension in which they could not be beaten. You and I both love that song. I think David Iwan composed it, Ama Ohid, We're Still Here. Ama Ohid, absolutely, absolutely. See, in the verses, it goes from the time of Maxen Ledig. Uh, so sub-Roman Britain, 
right through to the 19th century in the current day and uh, the chorus is we're still here we're still here and the last verse says uh, on, on judgment day they'll, they'll still be speaking welsh but but see uh this this phrase in our head it is sung it is not said or recited it's not written or engraved on something it's in the singing it's 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 the musical culture of wales that preserved wales as a distinct entity in many ways as is as is this idea of being non non-conforming in their religious approach and in many other ways of course because the sports they chose the um handicrafts they they chose to excel in were things that the english had in many cases thought were not for them or were outdated or didn't bring in much money because that, that's a big thing i think that wales has, wales has excelled in it's been community led in its banking and its education when it has been allowed to and that hasn't allowed itself to be leveraged and uh, and hypothecated and exploited by london based or now global financial interests so it's now sneered at, isn't it? Because it's it's regarded as the poor relation in the whole British Isles with the worst performing schools and health service and supposedly the least competent politicians. Well, that might be true in a way in the current day, but there's a, there's a historical reason for it, isn't it? That they were completely thrown back upon their own resources. Uh, well, there is uh, this mentality of victimhood that uh, many ancient nations exert in relation to their bigger and uh, better to do neighbours. The, the Irish, the Scots and the Australians call it the cringe and we've seen with Covidism that it's a major factor in the compliance in those countries and the reason why globalists like using those jurisdictions as labs uh, because if you have, as, as John Waters very eloquently says as well, if you've come out of cultural hegemony and de facto colonialism, you don't have the spiritual backbone often. Uh, the belief in yourself to say no. You have to copy what New York and London are doing. Uh, the idea is, uh, I was going to mention this idea of victimhood and, and blaming the big neighbor and, and, and a stronger neighbor uh, for, for all the faults that uh, happened to this nation as hindering these, uh, these people from, from progress in many ways. But the thinking that this victimhood produces is, is this, is to say, well, if the English hadn't come and conquered our land, England wouldn't have been there in the first place and the whole of Britain would have been Wales, wouldn't it? So it's, 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 it's the memory I uh, have encountered uh, some Welsh manuscripts and, uh, and historic accounts where uh, places in England are still called their Welsh names, their Britonic rather names. And uh, we as Armenians do it too. Places in Turkey, and uh, those places have been Turkey for a long time, we still refer to them. With, 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 with the Armenian names, and we do remember that once our ancestors used to dwell in those places, and I think the Welsh share that sentiment um, very much. It's a bit of the opposite of the forced Gaelicisation of Scotrail, for example, where places in the far southeast of Scotland, where Gaelic was never spoken, suddenly have to have prominence given to their Gaelic uh, uh, place names on the station sign. That That doesn't achieve anything, of course, but... It doesn't, I agree with you, but uh, again, saying that Gaelic was never spoken there 
would be uh, taken uh, taking it a little bit too far. Well, I'm aware of I've had my Scottish relatives have, have sat in what was uh, the heart of the Kingdom of Alba, East Central Scotland, and told me confidently that Gaelic was never spoken here, which is bunkum. Uh, but I'm thinking about the far southeast, the borders, Peebles, Berwick. That area uh, has absolutely never had Gaelic speakers yeah, well, in, a, in a native sense. That's, that's, that's they call themselves English. Before the English arrived, uh, those territories were populated by Britannic people and not Gaelic-speaking people, because the Gaels who came from Ireland, they lived in Dalriada initially, and in then the expanded. Yeah. Yes, and, and what's now the Scottish Eastern Scottish Borders was the uh, the Kingdom of the Godothin, which of course is a famous Welsh poem. Point uh, absolutely, signally. absolutely right. But uh, even though Gaelic wasn't spoken there, of course, uh, the British language was. And uh, then later in time, that changed with with the Anglo-Saxon expansion and and, and the English language that changed. And, and of course, the Norse, who have had their settlements in 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 that area, in the north of England, uh, Lindisfarne, Lindisfarne, for instance, and and, and expanding from there, they they have uh, left their imprint on on the culture of that area as well. But uh, I agree. Uh, when you say that you know you shouldn't force anyone to speak another language or even have have that language present in front of their eyes, mm-hmm. but that should equally apply to any other language as well, not just the Gaelic. In in my opinion, people should be free. Really, I mean, they should they should just speak whatever they like and whatever they prefer. They should choose whatever they prefer. There shouldn't be any effort made to uh, to extinguish any of the languages, which I'm glad that Britain doesn't do anymore. Britain actually encourages the use of Welsh and it encourages the use of Gaelic. And when you say Britain, of course, it was the Welsh Language Act, which which involved hunger strikes, actually, was, was enacted in 84, if memory serves, so well before devolution, uh, but to stave off the rise of Plaid Cymru, I believe. The Scottish Language Act was 2007 and was actually around the time that Labour ceded to the SNP, but after devolution. But uh, you admired my new British passport the other day with no EU on it, and you were surprised to see that now Gaelic is on there as well. well but that's, absolutely. That's a result of the Scottish Language Act after devolution. Northern Ireland, of course, this is the issue that has brought down the power-sharing government in devolution several times, and Britain is threatening to reimpose direct rule for as long as is needed to force that through to to be a, well, really, to be a, um, um, uh, a sop to Sinn Féin, sadly. It's, it's not really uh, deeply about the language anymore, is it? Uh, nor is Ulster Scots. That's, that's a you know, uh, turning a, a rural dialect into a literary language that it never was. And here we're getting at another issue altogether, the relationship between the Scots and the Irish and uh, the sectarianism that comes with it. And uh, interestingly, I've been, I've been uh, a supporter of uh, Glasgow Rangers my entire life. And what I can say here is that uh, whenever I said to any anyone that I uh, do not have any negative things to say about uh, the other party, uh, the Celtic supporters, well, apart from many, some peculiar instances, uh, such as uh, I do believe that Big Jock knew, but that's <laughs> that's another issue, okay? Uh, but I do love the Republican part of, 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 of Gaeldom. 
uh, I think both parts, both parties, both the Protestant and, and the Catholic parties, they should really, really reconsider their relationships because the, the root from which both parties stem is, is that same one root. It's the Gaelic, and if it's, if it's the religious sectarianism that we're talking about, it's of course Celtic Christianity. Now, one part of Celtic Christianity was forcibly converted, like the Irish, they were forcibly converted to Catholicism in the 11th century, actually. They, they were Using the English. I mean, when, when the Norman invasion happened, and then very soon afterwards, the Normans hopped over to Ireland. In both cases, they said in charters, the popes told us to do this to impose what they called true religion, in other words, to Catholicize the native Christianity. That started uh, even earlier than that with Ethelfred, the king of Northumbria, who uh, who uh, murdered and mass massacred the Welsh, well, not just the Welsh, but also the Celtic um, uh, Celtic ministers, the Celtic preachers, and 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 monks in the, in, in Bangor and Dee. Yes, and Bangor Iscoid. Bangor Iscoid. Not not the better known Bangor on the coast opposite Anglesey, but uh, further towards the English border. It was in it was in in that vicinity. It wasn't precisely within the modern boundaries of the city of the town of Bangor and Dee, but it was in that vicinity where where the uh, Christian uh, Celts, uh, the monks, were massacred by Ethelfred. Was, was it six six four? Well, I can't remember the date precisely. It was very close to but, the, the time uh, of the. No, sorry, that was the Synod of Whitby, but it was the mid seventh century. It was the beginning. It was the beginning of the seventh century, but the precise date isn't actually known, Alex. It's, That's why I can't remember uh, it. Yet. It's it's uh, either six eleven or six uh, uh, six twelve. But you know what? The whole uh, of my course died in, in Cambridge in thirteen. Aha! Uh-huh, so just before six thirteen, the whole of my course in Cambridge, both the Welsh side and the early English history side, Anglo-Saxon side, it was never mentioned. Which is very, very unfortunate. And, and all my theology studies of you know the, the history of the British Church in the widest sense, all of our islands, church history, it's never been mentioned to me by supposedly the leading people. Well, uh, it's interesting that it hasn't been mentioned because Bede writes about it, even though Bede is of course English and he's a very pro uh, pro Anglo-Saxon, as it were, in what he writes. He's also a reverent man, and he's shocked and appalled by 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 the viciousness of what happened and Ethelfred the king of Northumbria he was he was he was not a christian officially at the time no at that time only kent was converted wasn't it uh, that's that's right one one king in the south was converted mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, then his influence uh, expanded his wife, his wife was converted first that's true and his influence uh, expanded further north and uh, then uh, resulted in, the, in 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 that the uh, anglo-saxons uh, went westwards uh, expanding and uh, encroaching upon the celts upon the brits uh, but but back then at those times the church the church in Ireland, the church in Scotland, in church, uh, the church in Fort Rhein, for instance, in the Pictish lands, who were who were a distinct people group from 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 the Gaels, uh, so Dalriada, Fort Rhein, and uh, what's uh, the, the the kingdoms in modern day Wales? I think there were five kingdoms in in in, in Wales. These these churches, they were really one church. And they exchanged monks, didn't they? And they, they sent absolutely. missionaries. Well, the, the better one, knowns, uh, better known ones that you now write books about, 
went over the Atlantic or to, to Lonely Isles. Um, but there were also ones that went uh, right into the Alps. Uh, St. Gallen in Switzerland, where the best Irish manuscripts are preserved on the border with Liechtenstein. And I did an exchange programme as a sixth form uh, pupil with an Austrian uh, lad. And the name of his uh, uh, school was the, uh, the Schottengymnasium, because it had been founded by the Scotty, that is, Irish monks. St. Gallen is connected to the name of Columban, Alex. And within the Celtic Church, it turns out from all my studies of the subject is that there was an unofficial division of a pro-Roman group, that is the traitors, and, and, and a nationalist group, that is the Celts. And um, Columban, he was, he was an amazing person with his gifts and his ability to influence everyone. But he was very uh, pro-Roman. He was a person that wanted to drag the whole, whole of uh, Celtdom into the uh, uh, Roman sphere of influence. And he did that in his, uh, in his letters that he exchanged with the Irish and also the uh, English kings of, of uh, Kent and Northumbria. However, there were other people like St. Columba, for instance. We shouldn't confuse them. There's Columban, Columba and Columban, Columbanus, and they're all different characters. True, but uh, St. Columba, or namely Columkille in, in, in Irish Gaelic, this person formed an identity of the Celtic Church in a way that no one else uh, could have done in, in the whole of its history. What he did, he... Um, he made a particular stress on personal piety. And the question immediately today should arise, well, where do we find this stress on personal piety in modern Christianity? And you go back to the times of Reformation and you go back to, to the Scottish Reformation, and suddenly this John Knox's figure appears who, who admonishes the Queen of Scotland for for the lack of personal piety. She, he, so he got the... Where did he get from? Was it Rome? Was it Calvin? Well, I suggest no. Mm. No, it's it's his roots. It's his consciousness of, of, of the previous experience that he brings forth and streamlines within the framework of, of, of Calvinism of his day. Because you're well aware that this cuts clean contrary to 19th century uh, church history. And scholarship, because when the interest in Knox revived about the time the Free Church of Scotland got going in Edinburgh, um, scholarship started claiming that Knox had uh, spent most of his uh, student time in Geneva getting uh, Swiss theology, and that he then, as an exile in England, uh, tried hard to uh, lose his Scottish accent, and when he wrote the history of the Scottish Reformation, chose to use as, as few distinctly Scots words as possible. That's the mainstream theology now, that he was bringing... A, I've, I've been stood in front of what's now the Court of Session um, in Edinburgh with American guests and heard one of these you know, dressed-up, uh, silly, mummery tour guides uh, confidently tell people that there lies the grave of John Knox. It's right there in the car park in front of the Court of Session. And he was a nasty little man who brought back Dutch Calvinism. Of course, the man had never been to Holland in his life. But you see that there's a, a desire to externalise the Scottish Reformation and the idea that uh, all of the Puritanism that came out of that, going fast forward a century all the way through to Cromwell, it was all some foreign Dutch or Swiss extremism and it had nothing to do with our nice moderate Anglicanism. 
Well, this may be an uh, well uh, an extrapolation on my part, but what I compare this to is uh, the times of the late well uh, the later times of the Soviet Union, when many people who were discontent with the Soviet Union and wanted to preserve their uh, their distinctiveness, their identity, what they did was they went for another mainstream line that could battle the establishment. So what they did was... They wanted to be dissidents in a bigger boat. Well, they wanted to use the bigger boat in order to sink the, the large boat that dominated them in, in, in their home country. And of but, course, this was the third generation. By this time, Homo Sovieticus had been forged. You know, the, certainly the, the, the bourgeoisie... Um, of the middle class to the extent you had it, said we are new people, uh, we don't have an ethnicity. And of course the West uh, used that for, uh, for, for its own interest and so forth, but the, uh, the Jews who were, who were mainly uh, discontent with what was happening in the Soviet Union, they didn't lose their Jewish identity because they were all pro-American. They, they didn't uh, become something else no they 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 used that new ideas of those ideas of liberty and ideas of liberation of the markets and so forth in order to 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 sink this uh, this huge boat of the soviet union but then when 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 they, uh, they succeeded in that and so, and the other nations the ukrainian nationalists the armenian the georgian nationalists these people, they, they all were univocal, as it were, in saying that, of course, the Americas got a better mojo than we do. Let us, let us try to do what they have achieved. This, hence, the CIA pops in and, and revives banderism in Western Ukraine, for example. True. But as a result of that, well, as a side effect, perhaps, what you get is you get pockets of people who actually start getting getting an interest in the Ukrainian culture, in the Georgian culture, and trying to revive that. So, coming back to Knox, he indeed he learned all the tricks and techniques he could have learned from the uh, from the French and the Swiss. In As Geneva. did Andrew Melville, actually, a generation later, who was the first Scots clergyman ever to tell the king he didn't have a divine right in the church. And we're often told, oh, all of this was shocking and new and it came from Switzerland. But you do not lose your essence when you learn something, a technique or... or You're a good example. You were an extremely bright lad in, in trying circumstances. There were fizzing, bubbling ideas in your mind for which you hadn't found the words even in Russian. And you come to a more... Uh, uh, a better resourced environment and uh, suddenly you find that these thoughts have been laid out and so you adapt and appropriate in your case some of the English terminology for these things and go back to your part of the world. It doesn't mean that that uh, you've been turned into a British agent in Eastern Europe does it? It does not, uh, not at all but uh, this is about cultural exchange how it should be and uh, now this is another another good topic because I think there should be a lot more cultural exchange between the world and the Celtic, because the ideas that the Celtic tradition, the Celtic Church propagated, these were ideas very very contrary to any sort of slavery, any sort of enslavement. And I was going to say this. This is very important actually. Very often in the textbooks, in theological and historic historical uh, books, uh, 
that, that you read about the Celtic Church, they tell you that the only difference, the only real difference between the Catholic Church and the Celtic Church was the calculation of the day of Paschalia, that is the, Easter. the dating of Easter, and the tonsure, and the how tonsure. you should shave your head if you're a monk. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what they say is the difference, but it is, it is so far from reality, it's, it's, it's such nonsense. You only have to read the Celtic Church's literature, the devotional literature of the Cale Dei, the, uh, the Chaldees, or any other of these movements, and you see it's a completely different spirituality, a totally different, separate worldview. Alex, yes, but more interestingly than, than just the theology, uh, it's politically different. It's, it's diff- a rejection of empire, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a total and complete rejection of empire. Now, who were the main people in the Catholic Church? Everybody knows it. It's, of course, the Pope, right? The, the cardinals, the bishops. These are the main guys in the Catholic Church, in the whole of the Catholic establishment. Who are the main people in the Celtic Church? The monks. The teachers. Not, not somebody with political power. Not someone who can t- tell you, well, this is the law that I pronounce upon you that you have to go Columba by. invented a new type of martyrdom, a word which only means witnessing. He said you don't have to die as a martyr, you can also exile yourself as a witness. So he went over from Donegal by his own choosing to the first Scottish island he could find that didn't have uh, a line of sight to the Irish coast to remind himself, I'm here for a purpose, I've left. And, you know, he didn't wait for the papacy to tell him to go, did he? <sighs> The, the situation with St. Columba was, was a very interesting one because there is a lot of historic background to his exile. He saw the bloodshed, bloodshed of the battle uh, during, during King Nile. But, uh, Neil Nihilich, Nile of the Nine Hostages. Absolutely, Nile of the Nine Hostages, that's, that's what you call him in English. But um, that... Uh, is very much akin to the Jungian thinking, if we look at it psychologically. What, what Columba is saying that you do not is, is that you do not have to die physically. You can uh, you can die figuratively speaking. It 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 can happen in your inner world. You can change your circumstances. We have this idiom in English and no doubt in Russian too. I'm dead to those people. I'm dead to my old life. But many of the dissidents who joined the UK column scene, we don't encourage them to break with anything. Quite the opposite, to, to be kind and good to their family and neighbours. But there are some who, in their bitterness, say, I'm dead to my old life. True, but the big difference between this sort of death and, and, and the physical death that, uh, that Rome encouraged, actually, is that you get another chance. Yes, Rome's strategy and then later London's was, would you mind awfully standing in the front line of the battle? I'm sure that God will reward you when you get to heaven. Well, absolutely. And uh, he, uh, you know, God will know who, who is his and who isn't uh, in the end. It's, 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 a, it's a dismissive For those who don't attitude. know, that, that was the thing that they said in France while slaughtering the Huguenots on the, on the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. Kill them all. Yes, absolutely, but 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 this idea is 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 different. It's corrective. It says, "Well, look, you're in so, trouble in your life." Sorry, correction. It was even earlier. It was the Cathars, wasn't it, in the thirteenth no, century? No, no, I think it was. I think oh, it was the same. But no doubt, it's been said many times in history. That's true. That's true. But but the idea here is that correction can be introduced. You do not have to die physically. 
change your circumstances, change your path of behavior. And, and this comes back to the real biblical idea of what repentance is. Act differently. You've acted in one way, try another way. Try to be a better person. Well, the Hebrew word for repentance, shuv, means turn around. Shuva is, is precisely the returning. And, and this is what Columba preached, but Rome wasn't quite happy with that. And all the political power was with the kings, not with the monks. The monks were able to tell them what to do. And what we see here, separation of church and state. And over in the Hebrides, of course, there was no kingship worth speaking of. Scotland didn't even really get its grip on the Hebrides until after Norway ceded it in the 1200s. And even after that, you had a, a, a sub-kingdom, the Lordship of the Isles. So the Hebrides became the crucible, didn't they, for this, uh, a, bit, a bit like the American West later, for this state-light or almost stateless form of religion. True, true. And of course, the territory, the whole territory of Dal Riada was extensively used by the Irish, Irish monks to go further east into the Pictish lands and further south into the uh, in, into the English-dominated territories to preach the gospel. One of the accusations that, uh, that Augustine of Canterbury, whom I will not call a saint, uh, made against the Celts was that they refused to preach to their Saxon brethren. Now imagine what happened. These Celtic Christians, a, a Christian nation of the Celts, lived in Britain. The barbaric Saxons came over from Germany, slaughtered them all, took all of their land, uh, well, most of it, and, uh, and, and the best of it, pretty much, uh, drove the Celts away from the, uh, these lands, and uh, basically inflicted a massacre upon the Celts. And now this, uh, this representative of Rome comes in and says, well, why, why aren't you nice to these neighbours of yours? It's imperialism, isn't it? You two local tribes should jolly well get your act together. <laughs> but, Am I going to have to knock your heads together some more? But it's so interesting how the Celtic Church actually did preach the gospel to the Saxons. And the approach that the Celts were, have taken was a, an entirely different one from Rome, because to Rome, evangelism was when you go and persuade people by word or otherwise to accept what you have to tell them. Yeah, but this is what happened, of course, on the continent when the Franks, which is basically modern northern France, Belgium, southern Holland, started evangelizing the Saxons, which is the, the German side of Holland and further into northern Germany. It was, uh, would you mind converting today? If not, we have a few swords handy. That's, that's absolutely and right. And on the continent, they often do think that that's what conversion is. They do think that, and, and all colonialism is pretty much about it. That's what they've done in the Americas, and uh, they've done that in Africa too. But the Celtic Church had its own view of evangelism. They said, we serve as examples. We lead by example. We don't come and tell you, you know what, you've got to be like us. No. What the Celtic Church did is, we're trying to live the best and the pi most pious life that we can. Now, that didn't get too far. They weren't able to live. They're Irish. They don't live pious lives. But when they do, it's, it's amazing. And it's a national kind of character and unity that is expressed in that. Because there's a saying, at least in Russian, that the... Uh, the greatest speed of an army is the pace with which its weakest uh, soldier can walk. Yes. 
Well, we have the saying that the chain is as strong as its weakest link. Okay, well, that's that's the same thing. And when, when, when you're talking national spirituality, you have an entire nation comprised of all sorts of people. And of course, to be an example, you have to make sure that even the weakest person in your nation is strong enough to have at least some realization of what, what faith is, what values uh, it pro- does it project, and so forth. So the nation needs to be an example, not of being saint you don't have to be holy in terms of uh, holier than thou mentality or like sinless no 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 you have to show a model of how to live as a nation comfortably within yourself understanding that there's a progression going on there's dynamics to your religiosity to your faith to your values these things develop and you cannot impose anything upon anyone you just live your life and you show the example of how life is lived and that's how you evangelize now of course the approach in the saxon world and anglo-saxon world was was entirely different we will tell you how to live because we know better it's telling isn't it when the the two movements met halfway down england in yorkshire uh, as it now is at whitley in 664 and i won't put on an irish accent but the the celtic monks were conferring among themselves we know this from Bede, don't we and uh, what are we going to do about this Augustine whom Pope, uh, the, the Pope sent over? Well, they said to each other, if, um, if he gets off his chair to say hello, boys, then uh, there might be some business we can do with him. But if he stays arrogantly in his throne, which of course is what he did, then we'll know he's a no good. Absolutely. The Celtic, uh, the Celtic monks uh, did try, try Augustine that way. And uh, the, the approaches were so different. And what, what Augustine held against uh, Dagan, the Irish, for instance, was one of the prominent bishops in, the, in that delegation. He said that the Irish monks wouldn't eat with us, which is also very telling because they, uh, the Celts, they were seen as Judaizers in a way uh, by, by the Brits because, well, Christianity stems from Judaism. Surprise, surprise, you know. And, 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 and in, the, in the ancient Christianity, you have many practices from Judaism and not necessarily following the Jewish law, but having a law of your own. Mm. So when you see... Custom, which was so important in that early medieval period in Europe. Yes, it is not what law precisely is it, but it's the fact that you have to follow your national customs adapting them in accordance with the values that the Bible gives you, that the Old Testament and the New Testament gives you. Because it's the values, uh, essentially, that matter most. And then everything else derives from the values. So the Irish, they said, well, these people, we, we can't eat with them. Not because we hate them. Of course, they did hate them. Many, many probably did. But they didn't eat with them because they saw them as heathen. They saw them as people that you cannot break bread with. You can only eat together with someone who you, whom, whom you do not expect to uh, stand up and kill you right after that. Which did happen to the Celtic monks, as we've been discussing. Of course it did. And now going back to my original point about sectarianism and division and this Rangers Celtic um, mentality and hatefulness. Now, whom does that serve? Let's look at it. Well, I was uh, on a flight out here with um, an oil and gas guy from Ayrshire, David from Saltcoats is what he was, and I tried to make him a UK column viewer. Uh, but he was going on about um, what was happening to Scotland 
and he said that it seems that the SNP has brought Irish sectarianism, that was his word for him, from the central belt, but you know what, you know, you and I know what he means by that, sort of uh, the, the worst of the normal Irish sectarianism, trying to bring the Irish model to Scotland for political gain. Political gain and, and that, but we have to understand that both, both sides stem from the root of the Celtic Church, both the Protestants of Scotland and the Catholics of Ireland and Scotland, they're children of St. Columba. Well, it's been said by um, those interested in reconciliation in Northern Ireland that um, you can have ecumenical agreements or even services for some people, it goes too far for others, but you can have that if the basis is this is the land of St. Patrick. And, and of course, St. Patrick, namely Mewin Sukkot. Yes, he was a Welshman, well, was a he wasn't an Irishman. Was a Welshman, so that's 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 your other part of Celtum coming into it. So there should be, there should be more consciousness of the fact that these nations are so intertwined spiritually; they, they're inseparable. And when you chant these things uh, on Ibrox, you know, uh, I won't repeat that, but but uh, those horrible things that people say. You, you need to realize that you, you're yelling at your brother, at your kin, at, at, the, at the person that you're supposed to really love. And, and there's lots of, lots of bitterness in the history between the two uh, groups and there's lots, there's lots of uh, difficulty. I have and, to be very honest and say that there's not much animosity towards the Scots in Ireland, certainly not in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, well, uh, of course, I wouldn't say there's animosity, but I've heard the Irish people say, you know, these soup Protestants, and, the and, supers, yes, and, and 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 that sort of that sort of rhetoric. All of that needs to needs to be corrected. It doesn't have to go away. We we, we don't do away with history. We don't forget history. The, uh, of course, memory uh, selects what it wants to remember. And any narrative, when it's presented, you, you focus on certain things and on other things you don't. Mm. And it's, it's the nature of, of the human being. Yes, I mean, in the, the ferment of the early 1920s, uh, both communities in Ireland chose to remember who was driven out of certain territories. They don't remember who on their own side was driven out because they wouldn't go along with the politics. Northern Ireland became very quickly uh, a Presbyterian and Anglican-only Protestant state. Uh, if you were a dissident Protestant, uh, people even as distinguished as the father of Sir Fred Catherwood, who end, ended up being the vice chairman of the European Parliament, hopped over to Donegal uh, because he found more freedom there uh, as a non-Presbyterian, non-Anglican Protestant in, in the Free State, more freedom than he did in the new Northern Ireland. Similar things happened between Roman Catholics, of course, in Ireland, in the Republic. And the question to me is, how do you bring healing into these relationships? Uh, we should recognize the, the injustices that happened. We should recognize and be aware that these things can happen. We shouldn't dismiss them. But what we should also do is to bring healing into these relationships to say, look, this injustice has been done. It, it cannot be undone. Mm -hmm. It has been done. It's there. The, the suffering is there. But let us now start building another thing that will bring us enough joy to soothe that suffering build us another society, a society where we recognize that we're actually brothers, a society in which we will respect each other. And that 
takes a lot of theological work, I'd say. It, it takes a lot of um, reflection upon what's happened. And the truth needs to be uh, said, such as, such as uh, the truth about the Bangor massacre, the fact that uh, the, 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 the nationalist, well, I don't like the word nationalist because they, they stood for, the, for, for their tradition, for their faith, for their belief, but let's provisionally call them nationalists. The nationalist part of the uh, Celtic church uh, refused to cede all the ground to the newcomers, but they actually stood their ground and they did have to die. But we have their martyrdom to encourage us today and to say, well, look, there are values in life that are worth living for and perhaps dying for if the time comes. And these are not values that someone else will come and impose upon you, but these are values that you take from the inner depth of your heart. You bring it up and you say, well, this is how God created me and this is the way in which he would like me to walk. Therefore, I will continue walking in God's obedience as best as I understand it and then be whatever come my way. That, that mentality could bring a lot more healing and reconciliation to, to, to these communities. Because if you wish the best for another, if you wish, because they're your brothers, you wish the best for them. If you do that, then the difference of, uh, of the set rules of religion will not affect your lives in, in, in the manner that it did. And of course, the political exploitation of the whole matter is, is, is such a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. But we did have good examples of, 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 of a different behavior. For instance, I've, I've heard, now I don't know whether, the, whether it's true or not, but I've heard some of the Catholic Northern Irish people to, uh, say that Ian Paisley, as much as a you know, different figure he was and there were questions about him and so forth, but he was actually fair to them in his con constituency. Oh, yeah, the, the, his constituents in Antrim said that he was the best MP they'd ever had. See, so it can be done. It's not that was the Catholic constituents up in the glens. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, there is potential. The, the good things that, that that are there in history and are there in the relationships of the people, uh, they should be brought forward. Well, I mean, take, take Paisley. I mean, he he was called Doctor No, wasn't he? He was famous for saying no and never. But, you know, you can li like him or loathe him, but if a guy has said no to something he doesn't like, and we didn't use the word globalism back then, but it basically was, the Sunningdale Agreement was the, the apogee of his career, and I think that was pure globalism because he was resisting new-style devolution. Um, then if a guy's got that track record, he'll say no to other things, and he might actually prove to have a backbone and defend you. Well, uh, Ian Paisley uh, is, is no longer living, but today we need people who are better than him. We are a newer generation, we're the next generation, and it is supposed that today we should have developed more from his times and have become even better and perfected his ways or the ways of our other forefathers and ancestors in, in any dimension that you take in, in life. Who, who's the Irish hero these days, it's particularly an Irish Catholic hero? Well, I don't know who, who the Irish have as, as their hero nowadays. But that's know, the point, isn't it? You can't think of anyone. Uh, I, I know who are my Irish heroes, and I've built, in Georgia where I live, I've built a chapel to St. Brendan because he, he, he went into the territory that is an unknown. He 
he explored the world, he explored the inner world of a man. And, and that person has been an inspiration for me my entire life and still is. And you, you, you mentioned it in passing earlier. I did write a book about St. Brendan. It's, it's a children's book, but I, I think we need more good children's books for the younger generation to be inspired by the good examples. And we'll be working on the English translation of that next. Well, and uh, uh, you just had the proofs back and it's going to be called the Brendanion based right. on the Mabinogion. That's 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 right. That's right. It's, it's 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 a more modern thing, but the idea and the gist of the book is that a young young boy sees a dream of Saint Brendan and in that dream Saint Brendan takes him through the Irish history or well, century by century up to up to the 8th century. Uh, I didn't want to go further down this line, because uh, from 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 the fifth to the, to the to, to the sixth and seventh century, there's enough enough uh, things that need to be spoken about. And of course, this book sees how the katach, for instance, was made by Saint Columba on Iona, and he he witnesses the battle of uh, of, of of Nile, uh, the of of, of nine hostages. And he goes all the way to to meet uh, Dallin Forgal, who who who, the who is a bard. Who wrote, Be thou my vision, Rob Tumavala. Absolutely, and and then they 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 end up on the Isle of Bards in Wales, that is just off Anglesey, and and there they meet Merlin Wilt, who in my book is presented as as, as Merlin, and and uh, then they go into the uh, sanctuary of the Welsh tradition, well, where all the Welsh artifacts. Are preserved at the place called Tigwider, and that's the glass house of of Merlin. And there you have the art artifacts of the Welsh culture, including including some of the, some of the things belonging to King Arthur and other other heroes from Wales. And one item was from Ireland. So it's 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 a story that is supposed to teach you what the Celts are about, what the Gaels are about, what the Welsh and the Picts are about. These things are mentioned, and uh, I wish. And I, I started writing that uh, for my own son, who's, who's seven now, but I, I would really like him to, to be aware of, of the freedom that's there in, in, in the past. And uh, I, I want him to be a free man. And, and for that, in our modern world, we have to go back to cultures that celebrate a true freedom, not a freedom of loyalty to a, to a tyrant, or a king, or someone who supposedly knows better uh, to tell you how to live. No, but the freedom of looking into all the possibilities that are open before you, and choosing and following the path that you think reflects your inner nature best. And then, of course, me as a Christian, I believe that we need to correct things that are wrong in the light of the uh, Word of God that we understand to be the the central core of values for for humanity at least at this time because there were times where there was no bible people had their own concept or sets of ideas of, of how the world should be measured in terms of values now we do have both the bible and we have the traditions of our ancestors we have the culture that we have created we need to understand which things in the culture are good and which things are not so good and uh, a good marker of 
what's good and what's not good is whether it's pro- it produces bloodshed or not, I think. And when you kill someone, when you go out to, to do something, to harm another in the name of some glorious event, well, that's, that's your good example of how things can be very, very wrong. You do not kill in order to do a good thing. You cannot overcome death by pleasing it through killing many other people and adding to it. You do not overcome things like death by killing other people. How do you overcome? By decreasing it. Promote life. Celebrate life. Refuse to kill another. Refuse to kill the person that harmed you. Stop the violence and be positively good. Do something that is valuable. Go back to your tradition and see what is valuable in your tradition. Bring it up and celebrate it. These are the things that I'm teaching my son to have as his values in life. And uh, I I believe that uh, he might be able to touch upon that if he goes back to St. Brendan and St. Patrick and St. Columba. This is far from abstract for you, I know, in closing, because you have shared with your son that he is the fifth-generation survivor of a man who was cut down on his own land in Western Armenia. And at that time, uh, your uh, great-grandfather, as a six-year-old, had to flee on foot. Um, And so your son is now four generations further down from that. And despite you saying all this, and any child would be the same, I think, he was coming out with wishes to inflict violence on the Turks, and you've had to talk that out of him. So we have to be honest, don't we, uh, and see that the seeds of these problems are within our own hearts. We live in a world that is horribly imperfect. And in, in, in the situation when there is a war going on, which, which we've had last year, there will be uh, immature reactions, there will be immature thinking, especially with children. And you have to explain, you have to do your homework, you have to be a parent. And I think the older cultures, such as the Gales, such as, such as the Welsh, uh, they, they need to be parents to all those younger cultures around them too. And they have to actually share the values that they have in their cultures with the others that don't, don't know about those values yet. Well, we're sitting here in Odessa. Right? The state of Ukraine is very young and famously has no unified identity. So if you try to impose one, it ends in uh, bloodshed, quite literally. Uh, so this is a good example, and, and, and I'm inspired to say that by sitting here, because people here have got the very vaguest idea of the past. We were talking to another um, very elite um, interpreter and language teacher, Russian-English teacher, uh, while we've been here, who tells uh, told me that even 10 years ago, 2012, nearly 10 years ago, the teenagers of that time, so born in the mid-90s, when asked what happened in 1945, they said, don't know. And then she said, it was the end of the Second World War. Who was fighting whom? And they said, the Russians were fighting the Americans. So <laughs> that's what happened to the post-Soviet, I mean, to, to Ukraine of all places, where the most unspeakable things happened between the Red Army and the Wehrmacht. Well, Alex, I believe that uh, you and I and many people like us have a mission in our lives and if there's there's some person that I don't know and you don't know who's listening to this right now and who's thinking well what have I done to make things better one thing I would say well let us let us consider not adding to violence and, and making peace but genuine peace 
when uh, when it is possible and that could uh, that could be a good start because the way the world is going and the way the, the countries that we know are going uh, is not going to bring us all anywhere good uh, so so let's try our best and, and try hard to do uh, the good that we can while we're still living. Can globalism be defeated in the Celtic fringe? Uh, is I he pretty compliant right now? I do not think that we need to fight globalism. I do not think that this is a battle, this is a call to battle that we need to take upon ourselves. What we need to, to do is to be ourselves. We need to maintain our identity and we need to stand for who we are and live our lives the way we were created and globalism, it will, it will fall apart by itself, as has everything else. You just, our, 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 our purpose, we're not able, look, we're, we're only small nations. We're small look, 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 look at the Irish, how many of the Irish are, are consciously Irish in terms of their culture and tradition and so forth? How many Welsh are Welsh? How many Scots are Scots? Or, or let's say the Armenians, the Georgians, anyone else, the Greeks, the Jews, whoever. These these uh, lesser nations, and I mean the the people within these nations who are conscious of the actual national tradition, not the ones who are globalists, not the ones who are who are in in the banks or who are in the powerhouses or anywhere. No, no, the ones who want to be themselves and want to remain. How many of us are there in the world? Not not too many. Therefore, we shouldn't we shouldn't have this. Oh, we're going to battle these globalist people and we're going to prevail over them. No, no, our business is not fighting them. They will fight us themselves. They'll come to us. Don't you worry. Our business is try to make sure that while we are able to, we need to create mechanism mechanisms of passing our heritage, passing our culture, pa pa passing our thinking unto the next generation so that we can outlive them. Just like the Welsh, the Welsh sing their enemies away. That's what they do. And while they're singing, the song can be heard by a child and the child will carry on with the song. This is what we need to do. What's that old Persian proverb to close with about the river? Well, that's a, that's a Chinese one that you, you mean, but if you see, but, uh, sit by the banks of the river long enough, you'll see the dead corpse of your enemies floating by. And that's unless you rot there yourself. And in order to prevent that, we need to do precisely this. We need to transmit our heritage to our next generations. This is very, very, very important. Otherwise, we will die out ourselves. So that's, that's in our hands, a lot of it. Gevorg Virats, it's been a great pleasure. And I think many of our listeners will have learned a thing or two. So we look forward to making the Eastern Approaches podcast a more regular fixture. No doubt most episodes will go back to featuring Eastern Europe and the Near East. But uh, this has given us a lot more perspective. <laughs>